This November, the Supreme Court will hear oral argument in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, which involves Catholic Social Services foster care program. After finding out from a newspaper expose that Catholic Social Services, which is an arm of the Catholic Archdiocese of Philadelphia, would not place kids with same-sex couples due to their religious beliefs, the city blocked the organization from participating in the foster care system. If you ask somebody off the street about this case or other recent cases like those involving wedding cake bakers, florists, doing somebody's makeup, and so on, you'll hear that it's religious freedom versus freedom from discrimination, religion versus the LGBT community, right versus left. But it's actually a little bit more complicated as a legal matter. The Constitution protects the free exercise of religion. And in a pluralistic society, that's an important protection. But what does that mean today? in a time when attitudes about religion have shifted? Has the Supreme Court done more to help or hinder Americans' freedoms? We're going back 30 years to a case involving religious liberty, a shocking majority opinion, perhaps an even more surprising dissent, and peyote. I'm Elizabeth Slattery. And I'm Anastasia Bowden. This week on DIST, we're looking at Employment Division versus Smith. The court's decision is indefensible. I respectfully dissent. Because the majority in this case has not done what a court of law must do, I respectfully dissent. For these reasons and others elaborated, in my opinion, I respectfully dissent. We respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I respectfully dissent. I dissent. Alfred Smith was a drug counselor at a private rehabilitation facility in Oregon in the 1980s. He was fired after the rehab facility learned that As a member of the Native American Church of North America, he participated in peyote ceremonies. Spiritual use of peyote, a psychoactive cactus native to northern Mexico, dates back centuries. Called the root of the devil and satanic trickery by early European settlers, peyote has been vilified by Western culture, and it's been listed as a Schedule One drug by the federal government since the 1970s. But given its major sacramental role in Native religions, many states have allowed exemptions for its use in religious ceremonies. Oregon in the 1980s, however, was not one of them. Here's Al Smith talking about it. My experience with the use of peyote is very sacred. I respect it. I respect the church. And I would wish, you know, that uh, the continuance of the uh, use of the sacred sacrament uh, in these sacred ceremonies would be allowed and just let our people be. After he was fired, Smith was denied unemployment benefits by the state of Oregon because he had been fired for misconduct. He sued in state court, arguing that the state violated his free exercise of religion. In other words, he believed he was entitled to an exemption from the state's law prohibiting the use of mind-altering drugs such as peyote. The case went all the way to the Supreme Court. On April 17, 1990, the Supreme Court announced its ruling. The second case, number 881213, is Employment Division Department of Human Resources of Oregon versus Smith. The justices split 5-4, and there was a majority, a concurring, and a dissenting opinion. One was written by Antonin Scalia, still a relatively fresh face on the court, appointed by President Ronald Reagan just four years earlier. Another was written by Sandra Day O'Connor, another Reagan appointee and the first woman to serve on SCOTUS. And the third was written by Harry Blackman, 
the author of Roe v. Wade, who had served on the Supreme Court for 20 years. I'm sure Justice Scalia is well known to listeners. But before we get to the ruling, let's take a quick detour to talk about Justices O'Connor and Blackman. First up, Harry Blackman. Appointed by Richard Nixon in 1970, Blackman is a classic example of a Republican appointee who evolves in office. Everyone assumed he would be a conservative vote, along with then-Chief Justice Warren Burger, But that didn't end up being the case. Here's one of his former law clerks. I'm Charles Rothfeld. I am an appellate Supreme Court lawyer at Mayor Brown in D.C. He was really sort of genuinely self-effacing and, and humble. And when I actually went in for my interview and he, he had spoken to a number of other applicants before me and he said, well, you know, don't worry that, you know, you're not the first one here. I was, I was you know, number three for President Nixon. So when, when uh, Justice Blackman joined the court, he was really very much kind of following after the lead of, of Chief Justice Berger, and they were very close, um, and they were called the Minnesota Twins for for good reason, at least in the first couple of years. But but over time, they grew very much apart. And by the time I got there, which was in the 1981 term, so a thousand years ago now, looking back on it, but uh, it doesn't seem that long to me. But but, but uh, Justice Blackman had been on the court for almost 10 years at that point, and they had become quite different. And, you know, both at a, on a personal level and professionally, they, they had moved dramatically apart. He had been a judge on the Eighth Circuit in the 1960s at a time when you, know, you did not get a lot of really controversial hot button, what we would now call hot button issues, you know, in, in Minnesota on in in the Eighth Circuit. And so I think Justice Blackman had not really thought through a lot of his, you know, his thinking on what became the profound constitutional questions that he faced when he got to the Supreme Court. And that may in part explain how he and, and Chief Justice Berger moved apart, because I think the chief expected that Justice Blackman, when he got to the court, would just follow the chief's lead. And when he was faced with that, he reacted in a way differently than I think Chief Justice Berger would have expected. But by the time Justice Scalia got there, so we're now in the mid-80s, uh, Justice Blackman had become uh, you know, probably the leader, one of the leaders of the court's liberal wing. Um, and so he and Justice Scalia were very much ideologically you know, on, on opposite sides. And now turning to Justice O'Connor, here's one of her former law clerks. I'm Eugene Wallach. I'm a professor at uh, UCLA Law School. I um, have uh, taught First Amendment law, uh, both on the speech and the religion side, for about 25 years. And I write about First Amendment law as well. Yeah, she's a remarkable person. Um, she's, and she has one of the lives in American law. Um, she was a, uh, a young woman law school grad back at a time when it was really quite rare. Uh, she did spectacularly well in, uh, at Stanford Law School. Then she eventually got into uh, government service, private practice, became a politician in Arizona at a time when I think also it wasn't easy for women to be to be in politics. Uh, there had been women in politics for for quite a while at that point, uh, but uh, but still she was she was one of the trailblazers and uh, very successful. Became uh, I believe a majority leader in the state senate, or at least a Republican Party leader in the state senate. Again, a very unusual thing for a woman politician. In, in that era, became a state court judge and then a Supreme Court justice. You know, this is this is remarkable. There's a line from I think Tom Lehrer 
the humorist, that uh, he said that it's sobering to realize that when Mozart was uh, his age, uh, uh, Mozart had been dead for three years. So when Justice O'Connor was my age, she was already a Supreme Court justice. Uh, just just a, a, a remarkable woman. And, uh, and somebody who was a very good boss, I think she uh, demanded a lot, rightly so, of her uh, employees, of her, of her, particularly of her law clerks. But at the same time, I think took a kind of a, a motherly interest in us. Uh, she made sure that we would go on various cultural excursions. She would take us to to see the cherry blossoms. Uh, she took us to the uh, arboretum. She took us I, certainly to at least one museum. I forget exactly which one. It's been a while. And uh, I mean, she saw that there were these young lawyers and she probably still remembered herself as, the, as that from back in the day. And she took an interest in taking us under her wing. Uh, so wonderful, wonderful yeah, really incredible. I loved reading the story about that came out a few years ago about how uh, she and Chief Justice Rehnquist had actually dated at one point in right. their standpoint, and, and I loved reading that. Right, and I believe uh, Rehnquist proposed marriage to her. But, alas, she said no. <laughs> well, well, there you go, perhaps. Well, I think my understanding is that Rehnquist ended up very happily married as well, as was she. Um, and yes, I, I think if they had married, uh, it would be very unlikely uh, that she would have become a, a justice just because, you know, politically speaking, it would be hard to see a married couple on the court. You, I think that would throw off the dynamics a little bit. But back to Employment Division versus Smith. A long line of our decisions has held that an individual's religious beliefs do not exclude him from compliance with an otherwise valid law prohibiting conduct that the state is free to regulate. For example, laws prohibiting polygamy, laws regulating the use of child labor, laws requiring individuals to perform military service, and laws compelling individuals to pay taxes. That's right. Justice Scalia, known for his deep Catholic faith, wrote the majority opinion ruling against Smith and his religious liberty claim. And Justice Blackman, known for authoring Roe v. Wade, wrote the dissent. Here's more from Justice Scalia's opinion. The only decisions in which we have held that the First Amendment bars application of a neutral, generally applicable law to religiously motivated action have involved not the free exercise clause alone, but the free exercise clause in conjunction with other constitutional protections such as freedom of speech or the right of parents to direct the education of their children. This free exercise plus something else seems to set the stage for all sorts of creative litigation strategies later on. But back to Scalia. The government's ability to enforce its criminal laws, like its ability to carry out other aspects of public policy, cannot depend on measuring the effects of a governmental action on a religious objector's spiritual development. In Scalia's view, it would be better for individuals to ask legislators to grant them an exemption rather than for courts to say that an exemption is constitutionally required. In his dissent, Justice Blackmun accused the majority of throwing out decades of the court's jurisprudence that, quote, painstakingly developed a consistent and exacting standard to test the constitutionality of a state statute that burdens the free exercise of religion. The strict scrutiny standard asks whether the law is justified by a compelling interest that can't be served by less restrictive means. Until today, Justice Blackmun wrote, I thought this was a settled and inviolate principle of this court's First Amendment jurisprudence. Here's more from Justice Blackman. I do not believe the founders thought their dearly bought freedom from religious persecution a luxury, but an essential element of liberty, and that they could not have thought religious intolerance unavoidable, 
for they drafted the religion clauses precisely in order to avoid that intolerance. Turning to the concurrence, Justice O'Connor agreed with the result, but not with the rationale of the majority opinion. She would have simply applied the old standard. Here's what she said. The First Amendment does not distinguish between laws that are generally applicable and laws that target particular religious practices. Indeed, few states would be so naive as to enact a law directly prohibiting or burdening a religious practice as such. Our free exercise cases have all concerned generally applicable laws that had the effect of significantly burdening a religious practice. If the First Amendment is to have any vitality, it ought not to be construed to cover only the extreme and hypothetical situation in which a state directly targets a religious practice. The majority in Smith was panned by the right and left. It's been called a travesty, a tragedy, and a sweeping disaster that turned constitutional law upside down. We asked a number of people what their reaction was when they first read Smith. My name is William Hahn, and I'm counsel at the Beckett Fund for Religious Liberty. Yeah, I've looked askance at Smith since I read it in law school uh, for a number of reasons. For one, you know, it made little sense to me that the First Amendment, which says that no law can prohibit the free exercise of religion, only requires merely equal treatment between religion and anything else. My name is Rick Garnett. I am a professor of law and concurrent professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. Rick thinks the court got it right in Smith, but nevertheless... There's certainly, you know, with all due respect to the late Justice Scalia, there's a lot to criticize in that opinion. I don't think it characterizes accurately the court's pre-Smith precedents. Um, I don't think it's persuasive at all to construct this so-called hybrid rights theory. And I think the majority probably should have engaged a bit more than it did um, with the historical question. Hi, I'm Michael McConnell. I'm a professor at Stanford Law School, a former appellate judge, a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. McConnell is one of, if not the, leading free exercise scholar in the country. So do you remember your reaction to Smith when you first read that decision? (laughs) Oh, I certainly do, uh, because I had written... uh, an over 100-page study of the original meaning of the free exercise clause, which was coming out on the Harvard Law Review, and I had just received the page proofs, and I was arguing in favor of and support of the Supreme Court's then-current doctrine that the free exercise clause protected the free exercise of religion as a preferred right uh, subject to strict scrutiny. And then along comes this completely unexpected opinion. So uh, I panicked. He thinks the court got it wrong. Uh, So yes, the evidence here is not all in one side, but I do think that there's very substantial evidence that the framers of the First Amendment would have understood the free exercise of religion uh, to include at least some uh, exceptions to generally applicable laws. Turning to the dissent and concurrence, here's former Blackman clerk Charles Rothfeld again, talking with Elizabeth. Were you surprised by Justice Blackman's dissent? No, I mean, I, I for I guess for two reasons. I mean, one is I, I had thought that you know he and you know and Justice Brennan and Justice Marshall who, who joined in his dissent, you know, were, were generally pretty sympathetic, you know, to 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 non-mainstream religious organizations that had had claims. 
Um, and, and so, uh, and I, th- I think generally, you know, he was not hostile to claims of, of religious, you know, of free exercise. Um, and so I, I was not really surprised by that. I mean, I would have thought it might be a unanimous decision had I looked at it, you know, going into the argument. And I think Justice O'Connor, who wrote her own separate opinion, uh, which wasn't quite a dissent, but almost was a dissent, uh, I did a pretty effective job in, in, I think, demonstrating why the majority was kind of off the rails on it. Yeah, it might as well have been a dissent. <laughs> yes, uh, that's right. And here's Michael McConnell again. Uh, no one in the case argued that, that the strict scrutiny test from Sherbert and Yoder should be overruled. The entire question was whether uh, the enforcement of the Controlled Substances Act against the Native American practice of peyote use would, you know, served a compelling governmental interest in the least restrictive way. And Justice O'Connor said, yes, it does. And Justice Blackman said, no, it doesn't. Of course, O'Connor and Blackman agreed that the free exercise test was what it was. And then you have these five other justices who say, oh, no, uh, uh, we're going to overrule prior practice, prior precedent without really uh, saying so. And even though it was not brought up by the parties, it was not in the briefs, it was not mentioned in oral argument, um, which is really a pretty remarkable thing for them to have done. Eugene Volokh has a different perspective. I think very highly of Justice O'Connor, but doesn't mean I always agree with her. Uh, I think, uh, so Justice O'Connor's concurrence said, well, there ought to be a religious exemption regime, but this ban on peyote is narrowly tailored to to the compelling interest in preventing drug abuse. And Justice Blackman, joined by um, uh, Marshall and Brennan, said, well, uh, there are, uh, th- that there ought to be this exemption regime and granting the exemption wouldn't really undermine the compelling interest. Uh, that dispute actually struck me as highlighting the uh, soundness of the majority opinion. How dangerous is peyote? How danger- if it is dangerous enough to ban, how dangerous is the, uh, would be a religious exemption to the overall ban? How much would the religious exemption undermine the overall ban? Those are difficult pragmatic judgment calls. I wondered if the opinion would have come out the same if the facts had been different. If, for example, it hadn't involved an illegal drug. Here's Michael McConnell. I don't think the Smith opinion was motivated by hostility to religion in general or to Native American religion uh, in particular. I think it fit with uh, Scalia's general jurisprudence in which he did not want judges to be imposing uh, contentious, subjective judgments uh, on the whole uh, country. Yeah, well, that's that's an interesting question, and, and maybe if we go to the Blackman Papers, the Library of Congress, we can get an answer to that. Uh, but yeah, I, th- I think that it's it certainly would have affected the going in attitudes of the justices. You know, a, a, the atmosphere atmospherics of a case always have some impact on you know how you view the claims that are being made. And you know, for example, in the Smith litigation, if it were you know, if some state ha- had tried to reimpose prohibition and made use of sacramental wine illegal, uh, you know, in, in Catholic mass, it's very hard to imagine that the same five justices would have said that that was that's fine.
And then there's this passage in Scalia's majority opinion talking about hybrid rights. It seems like he was trying to distinguish some of the older cases without actually overruling them. And so he said those were different because you had free exercise plus another constitutional right at stake, and that strengthened the claim. Everybody seems to agree this was wrong. Here's Rick Garnett. The theory that, like, you know, two rights claims are stronger than one seems kind of silly to me. And Charles Rothfeld again. I think it's pretty dubious. You know, it, it, it looks as though the court wanted to reach the conclusion that it wanted to reach, and there were these old cases standing in its way, and so they had to come up with some way of distinguishing them, and, and they did. But, you know, again, you take a step back, you know, why are two constitutional rights different than one constitutional right? I mean, if it's a violation of free speech, it's a violation of free speech. If it's a violation of your substantive due process right to raise your children as you want, it's a violation of the substantive due process right. So why do you have to combine it with some other constitutional provision? And here's Will Hahn. The notion that a free exercise claim by itself doesn't merit strict scrutiny, but it might when there's some other constitutional claim at stake, ends up reducing the free exercise clause to offer a lot less protection than the rest of the First Amendment. And I think a good example of that at the Supreme Court would be in Christian Legal Society versus Martinez. This is a case about a religious student organization's right to select its its leaders of a religious organization according to religious criteria. And there, the court relegated the free exercise analysis to a single footnote, and it focused exclusively on free speech issues. So I think that's an example about how in Smith's wake, there's been an incentive to want to argue cases that are principally about a free exercise concern under some other constitutional clause. I talked more with Eugene Volokh about this. So do you think this has led litigators, though, to try to get creative and, and bring additional constitutional claims to bolster a, a free exercise claim? Yes, of course. That's litigators' job, right? Uh, that's what we have to do. So you might say, well, for example, let's say there is a, a case involving um, a, a landlady who is being sued for marital status discrimination in refusing to rent to an unmarried couple because uh, she thinks that that this would put her in a position of being complicit in their sexual sins and that that itself would be sinful for her. So occasionally you see claims saying, well, that's a combination of free exercise claim and maybe a takings claim. Yes, we know that anti-discrimination laws generally aren't viewed as violations of the takings clause, but maybe there's a colorable enough claim that it together with a free exercise claim go over the bar. Generally speaking, this has not gone far. And again, I don't think that this is a sensible way to run a legal system. But of course, once you have language like that in a Supreme Court opinion, well, then lawyers do what we're trained to do, which is make the best of it for our clients. But not everyone agrees that Smith is responsible for this. Here's Rick Garnett. You know, I think that's giving the hybrid rights theory too much credit. Um, <laughs> I don't think I don't think that's what was going on there. But I think you're onto something really important. We did see after Smith a lot of pro-religious freedom litigators framing the cases in terms of freedom of speech and viewpoint neutrality. And I think that's really the root of the, of the argument in Masterpiece Cake Shop. So it would seem Smith at least contributed to this odd situation where cases that are at their core about the free exercise of religion end up being litigated as something else. But then Congress stepped in. Here's then House member Chuck Schumer of New York 
the leading sponsor of the congressional response to Smith, the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, also known as RIFRA. In 1990, in an infamous case known as the Smith case, the Supreme Court changed the standard radically. In my opinion, that decision rubbed against the total American grain of allowing maximum religious freedom. Of course, when the government had a compelling interest, that's where it should stop. But up to that point, why not let religious freedom bloom? But incomprehensively, Judge Scalia's decision explained that requiring the government to accommodate religious practice was a luxury. Smith was a devastating blow to religious freedom, and we are trying to undo it. It passed unanimously in the House and 97 to 3 in the Senate. Here's President Bill Clinton at the signing ceremony for RIFRA. The power to reverse legislation by legislation, a decision of the United States Supreme Court, is a power that is rightly, hesitantly, and infrequently exercised by the United States Congress. But this is an issue in which the, that extraordinary measure was clearly called for. As the Vice President said, this act reverses the Supreme Court's decision, Employment Division against Smith, and reestablishes a standard that better protects all Americans of all faiths in the exercise of their religion in a way that I am convinced is far more consistent with the intent of the founders of this nation than the Supreme Court decision. RIFRA prevents the federal government from placing a substantial burden on the exercise of religion, unless that burden advances a compelling interest in the least restrictive way possible. Here's Michael McConnell talking about how it works. RIFRA, which is what we call that statute, um, may provide better protection in a practical sense than the free exercise clause did. And I think the reason for that is that because uh, it is now a statutory right and not a constitutional ruling, I think judges are a little bit less squeamish about applying it. Judges across the spectrum, but maybe especially conservative justice uh, judges, are reluctant to overrule the actions of uh, the political branches of the government on the basis of constitutional uh, claims. They do it, of course, but it's, you know, judicial restraint counsels against that. McConnell may be right that in practice, judges are reluctant to overrule laws based on constitutional claims. But that strikes me as wrong in a normative sense. It's the judiciary's duty to strike down laws when the political branch violates people's rights. And maybe if courts were more engaged with these claims, we wouldn't need legislation like RIFRA in the first place because the Constitution as written does a good job of protecting individual liberty. Others agreed that RIFRA provides a good deal of protection. Here's Eugene Volokh. If it's just a statutory claim, Congress can step in and, and just carve out an exception from RIFRA, saying essentially RIFRA doesn't apply to, to drug laws or to the WASCA law. And uh, that, I think, emboldens judges further because they say, you know, we don't have the ultimate responsibility here. We're just we're just trying to follow what Congress told us. It said strict scrutiny. It sounds very demanding. So we are going to carve out an exception. And if the Congress doesn't like it, well, they can just overrule this exception or not quite overrule it, but basically reject the exception by modifying RIFRA to uh, no longer authorize it. And in the RIFRA cases that have reached the Supreme Court, religious adherents tend to win. Here's Michael McConnell talking about a case under RIFRA that was very similar to the facts of Smith. And we saw that in the very first RIFRA case to get to the 
United States Supreme Court, which is the Ocentro case, which was very similar to Smith and its facts. They both had to do with indigenous peoples having uh, a sacramental use of a controlled substance. Uh, and, uh, you know, Smith went against the claimants and uh, Ocentro was unanimous that when you looked at the very particular application of the Controlled Substances Act to the specific organization, the government's interests did not seem uh, very powerful. That brings us to the reason we're talking about Smith at all. This term, in Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, the Supreme Court has been asked to revisit its decision in Smith. So what's going on in the Fulton case? We sat down with one of the lawyers representing the foster care families. Here's Will Hahn from the Beckett Fund. In Fulton versus City of Philadelphia, you have the city demanding that a religious agency, Catholic Social Services, which is an arm of the Catholic Church in Philadelphia, the Archdiocese, either forego its centuries-old religious foster care ministry or forego its centuries-old religious beliefs about the nature of marriage. In 2018, the city learned through a newspaper article that the Catholic Church's foster care ministry upholds Catholic beliefs about marriage. If, in other words, if that ministry was ever asked by an unmarried or same-sex couple to endorse that relationship for child placement, it would not be able to provide such an endorsement, but instead it would help those couples find another agency. And there are 29 others in the city, including three that have expertise in serving families identifying as LGBTQ, those agencies could provide such an endorsement. To Philadelphia, though, that was not enough. So now, Catholic Social Services hadn't turned any gay couples away, had they? No. In fact, as to that issue, the dispute is entirely hypothetical. No same-sex couple there either has ever approached Catholic Social Services in the record about fostering or adopting, and the army of amici that uh, the city of Philadelphia has amassed could not identify a single instance of that either. Well, how does Smith come into play in this case? After Catholic Social Services challenged Philadelphia's actions, the lower court said it was not entitled to an exemption from the city's neutral, generally applicable policy, and that the city did not treat the agency differently because of its religion. But you must be wondering, what about RIFRA? Didn't it effectively overturn Smith already? Here's Michael McConnell. Well, first of all, RIFRA does not apply to state actions of state and local governments. Uh, and so that's the big reason. And although a majority of states have adopted uh, state-level RIFRAs, not all of them have. Some of the biggest states have not. Uh, and they are also subject to interpretation by state courts, which are not always as uh, robust uh, as the interpretations by the federal courts. So those are some practical reasons. I also think that, you know, for many people, it's important that we get the Constitution right and that the Smith, although although RIFRA may have solved the practical problem for many people, it still seems to be a devaluation of the importance of this explicit uh, constitutional right to treat it this way. And that would be good to uh, uh, overturn. Here's Will Hahn. And important religious exercise interests can often arise in cases, even at the state level, that aren't 
covered by those laws, or they may arise in states where, like this one, the applicable state law has been narrowed to the point that it doesn't apply. So the result is you can even have these protective statutes, but important religious freedom cases fall through the cracks. And we've seen this repeatedly since Smith, whether there was, you talk about a, a Hmong believer who was subjected to a forced autopsy and had no recourse because of Smith, a Jehovah's Witness woman died because Smith prevented her from receiving a timely blood transfusion. I think he means a liver transplant, but you get the idea. Smith has led to some bad things happening, and Riffra doesn't always provide a solution. So let's say the court does overturn Smith. Never a safe bet to take. What would replace it? Here's Michael McConnell. First of all, I suspect the Riffra precedents would would carry the day uh, in many instances. But I also suspect that in pure constitutional cases that the courts would be would apply something, you know, maybe a little bit closer to uh, intermediate scrutiny, that they might use an analogy to free speech cases involving conduct, that is, expressive conduct, in which the uh, court generally, it, it does not apply, you know, uh, you know, strict, strict scrutiny, but looks importantly to whether the government has a an interest that is not based upon the communicative impact of the expressive conduct, but is sort of independent of that. And I think there's an analogy to be drawn there to uh, to religion, and also asks whether the government's uh, rule leaves adequate independent uh, avenues for the expression. Rick Garnett suggested that the pre-Smith standard may not be as great as some have made it out to be. You know, the reality is that before Smith, um, at least in the Supreme Court, religious liberty claimants usually lost. Uh, Usually courts would find a way of saying either that there's no burden or they would say that, well, if there's a burden, it's outweighed by a compelling state interest. And here's my exchange with Eugene Bollock. General Gunther once famously labeled strict scrutiny, which is that the time was used basically in equal protection, especially with regard to race classification, strict in theory, fatal in fact. And then um, uh, uh, Larry Sager and Chris Eisgruber uh, said that during the uh, Sherbert Yoder era, it was strict in theory, feeble in fact. So long as strict scrutiny is just kind of a mushy balancing test without much by way of constraint. So I, I'm not, that's one reason I'm not fond of strict scrutiny in the free exercise clause context. Here's Charles Rothfeld. It, it's hard to believe that they would adopt a real strict scrutiny standard, you know, in, in the you know, racial discrimination sense for the reasons that they came out the way they did in Smith. I mean, I think that they will be confronted with the prospect of that concern Justice Scalia and Smith, that that people will be, you know, laws unto themselves by announcing some you know, religious principle that they adhere to and accepting themselves from generally applicable uh, statutes and, and yet can be undercut pretty substantially by a very expansive reading of the constitutional right. And if you apply a really powerful strict scrutiny standard, then those claims to exemption will always prevail. Um, so, I, you know, I wonder whether if the court goes down that road, it will kind of, you know, re, recharacterize the meaning of strict scrutiny or whatever kind of scrutiny it, it, it gives in, in this setting. I set out thinking that Employment Division versus Smith was wrongly decided and that the court would overrule it or at least marginalize it when given the chance. 
that's been the sort of conservative take on the case for a long time, and that it's an outlier of Justice Scalia's jurisprudence. But after hearing about the more robust protection free exercise enjoys under RIFRA, I'm left wondering what the right path is. Rick Garnett summed it up well. I do think that there's no escaping the fact that there, there are cultural and social and ideological things happening today that make religious freedom more vulnerable than um, it might otherwise have have been in, in a in a Smith world, right? Just you know, a lot of academics think religion isn't special anymore. Uh, that it that equal protection is enough. That that, that that's all that's warranted. Uh, increasingly, Americans uh, identify as you know the nuns, the N O N E S, and um, you know we see our leading newspapers put the term religious liberty in scare quotes all the time. It's impossible to imagine Rifra passing almost unanimously now as it did before. So I I, I do worry that. Some of what Justice Scalia assumed about our political commitment to religious freedom, uh, that those assumptions, and, and I, to, be, to be fair, um, some of what I assumed about our shared religious uh, commitments to religious freedom might not be true anymore. And so that's, that's worrisome to me. Part of that worry is that RIFRA is a statute that could be repealed. And where would that leave religious believers? Just consider the fact that some churches have been closed for months on end due to the coronavirus shutdowns, while states have eased restrictions for restaurants, casinos, and even movie theaters. For my part, I'll never oppose an effort to hold the government to a higher level of scrutiny when restricting our freedom. There's something to be said for holding the government to a higher level of scrutiny anytime it restricts our rights, whether that be a so-called fundamental liberty like religious liberty, or a law restricting your ability to work, your ability to speak, your ability to marry who you want, your ability to order your life in the way that you see fit. Whatever the government's doing, it should have a good reason for doing it. So what will the court do with Smith? At least a few justices are interested in revisiting the ruling. Last year, the court declined to take up a case brought by a football coach at a public high school who was fired for praying at the 50-yard line after games. When the court declined to hear that case, Justice Alito wrote a statement pointing out that Employment Division versus Smith, quote, drastically cut back on the protection provided by the Free Exercise Clause. But he said no one had asked the court to revisit it. He was basically inviting someone to challenge it. And Justices Thomas, Gorsuch, and Kavanaugh joined that statement. And earlier this month, Justice Thomas, joined by Justice Alito, issued a statement respecting the denial of a case involving a county clerk in Kentucky who refused to issue marriage licenses to same-sex couples in the wake of the court's ruling in Obergefell, citing her faith. Thomas agreed that this wasn't the right case for the court to take up for procedural reasons, but he pointed out that the court created the problem and only it could fix it, and that we'll continue to see cases pitting religious liberty and the rights of same-sex couples against each other. Thomas mentioned Smith in a footnote, and I think the implication is that Smith has contributed to the conflict here. So that's four justices who appear to be open to the possibility of overturning Smith. But you need five. And that may be an uphill battle. Justice Sotomayor doesn't seem like a likely candidate. She has rarely sided with the conservative bloc on the court in religion cases. Even in ones with broad majorities like Trinity Lutheran, Masterpiece Cake Shop, and Our Lady of Guadalupe School just last term. Of the remaining three, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kagan are both pretty big fans of stare decisis. That's the court's doctrine of not overturning past cases unless there are really, really good reasons for doing so. And just being wrong is typically not strong enough. That leaves Justice Breyer, 
And it just so happens a 1997 case may shed some light on his views. In City of Bernie versus Flores, the court said that Congress overstepped its authority by making the federal RIFRA apply to the states. Breyer wrote a dissent saying he believed the court should have considered whether Smith was correctly decided. That's not typically something you would do if you agree with a ruling, right? Will Justice Breyer provide a fifth vote to overrule Smith? Or have his views changed in the more than 20 years since he wrote that dissent? We may find out later on this term. But if the court does overrule Smith, only time will tell if that will help or hinder Americans' liberty. Thanks for listening to DIST. Please subscribe on Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd appreciate your feedback, so send questions, comments, or ideas for future episodes to dist at pacificlegal.org. And if you enjoyed this episode, please leave us a five-star rating and tell your friends to check out DIST.